Hello and welcome to the National Trust Podcast. I'm Kate Martin, Lead Ranger in the Northwest. Today, we're heading to a covert National Trust nature reserve in the southeast to explore a strange and treeless landscape rich with rare animals and ancient monuments. Known locally as the Island of Secrets, we're going to find out what surprises lurk hidden away on this East Anglian shingle spit. It's an absolutely glorious day here today in Orford. The sun's shining, there's a gentle warm breeze and ripples over the water and the little boats are just bobbing round in front of me and I'm waiting to meet Glenn who is actually a fellow ranger and he's going to take me on the ferry that's going to cross this small stretch of water to Orford Ness Nature Reserve. So I'm just looking out for Glenn now and in fact here he comes. Ahoy there Glenn. Hi Kate. Um, always wanted to visit Orford Ness, so I'm so excited about this today. It's a very special location, so come aboard. This is the Octavia. Fantastic, well named. Right, I shall come and join you. So welcome to nearly Orford Ness. Orford Ness itself <laughs> is just the other side of the river, short two, three minute crossing across. You can just keep all arms and legs inside the boat. In the unlikely event we need it, life jackets are at the front and emergency exits are here over the <laughs> side. So sit back, enjoy, and we'll get you across the other side. Oh, lovely. There's a, a sort of sign in front of me, which is quite foreboding, really. It says, Government Property Private Landing, Authorised Persons Only, which um, I don't know if I'm authorised or not, but I'm here now, so let's get going. So, Kate, I'll leave you to explore. Here's a map, so if you'd like to follow the trail along, the red trail, it goes right past the ranger's office. Uh, we'll have the kettle on there for you. Fantastic. And all I'll say is, do you mind your step? Oh, OK, that sounds really ominous, but I shall. So I've been officially abandoned in the wilds of Suffolk. But it's actually quite a strange feeling here because, you know, I turn around and there's a sign saying Orford Ness National Nature Reserve, but actually the landscape I've got into is quite industrial looking. It's an eerie, eerie place, this. It really is. But I can already tell this is going to be an amazing place for wildlife. Orford Ness is such a special place for various amounts of wildlife. I'm Andrew Capel and I'm the area ranger for Orford Ness. There's several habitats, got the grass grazing areas, the marshlands, vegetated shingle, the derelict buildings that are home to quite a few birds, beetles as well nest in the decaying wood and around these structures. We've got various sorts of animals ranging from red data book species. We've got our rare birds that we might see flying around on a visit and one of our rarest animals is one of our sheep. They're the white-faced woodlands, a category three endangered animal. They're kind of like on a similar level to orangutans, great white sharks, and all these animals that you see David Attenborough going around, your, your lowland mountain gorillas. Sheep are the last thing you're gonna think of being endangered. <laughs> When you first sort of stop and look out across this landscape, it can look, I think, at first sight, a little bit bland. You know, it looks very yellowy, very browny. But actually, if you sort of get in close, you can see a real variety of colour. There is obviously the greens and the yellows of the grasses, but there's also lovely russety orange colours. There's pinks, there's purples. 
What is interesting here is the lack of bird sound, really. Bird, bird calls, bird song, you know, the sort of chirrup of a robin or the call of a thrush or a blackbird, those usual sort of garden birds almost, to sort of have that missing makes it even stranger, I think, this landscape. But I'm sure there's plenty of bird life. I'll just get my binoculars out, have a scan round and see if I can see anything exciting. Oh, that's a black-headed gull. Not with its black head, actually, this time of year. So little red legs, smaller than the herring gull or the lesser blackback. Actually, usually you see a few of these together, so it's quite strange to see one by itself. It's just pacing around. It's looking a little bit lost and lonely, like it's waiting for its mates. It's a lovely kestrel just over to our left-hand side that keeps flying up and hovering and then diving, so probably some poor little vole or field mouse getting munched for kestrel breakfast at the moment. Three oyster catchers just flying ahead in front of us. Two together and then one on its own that's calling the others like, let me in, I want to be part of your group. Oh, they've joined up together now. Oyster catchers are only ever in beautiful places. So now I'm somewhere lovely. There's something over the far side that looks a little bit bigger. Might be a heron or something of that ilk. It's just a little bit too far away. Oh no, it's taken off, it's a wood pigeon. That was slightly less exciting than I was hoping. <laughs> Even without trees, wood pigeons get everywhere. So far, the walk's been along a sort of tarmac track. And it feels really, really safe, but I'm mindful that Glenn said that we really needed to watch where we put our feet. It makes me wonder if there's something possibly not under the track we're on, maybe, or maybe somewhere else that uh, might be a little bit dangerous. It just has this feeling of a, an, a, an abandoned village that, you know, literally people have just dropped everything and left, very much like the sort of legends of the Marie Celeste that kind of just left everything and, and walked away and then nature and the elements have taken over. So I think really we need to catch up with Glenn and find out what this place is all about, because it's very strange. But before we do that, I have to dodge these sheep that have just walked across the road in front of us. Hello, Glenn. Hello. This is a very snazzy ranger's office. It is. Would you like a cup of tea? Oh, I'd love a cup of tea. So how did this firstly come to be a nature reserve? come to be looked after by the National Trust. It's such a strange place. It's always been a fairly remote and protected place, really going back to medieval times when there was cattle grazing here. Being just that short distance across the river, it was always a bit on its own. It was always a bit secluded, so it always had sort of that air of mystery about it. The Trust bought the site back in 1993. Prior to that, it had been owned for 80 years by the military. They started in 1913, so we went through the First World War, into the Second World War, and then onto the Cold War. But worked sort of in between those periods as well. So Yeah, so it was constantly used by them. Real, real sites of research, innovation, and exploring really new stuff here. I mean, you were saying when we started off and we got off the jetty, you know, to sort of watch, watch where I'm putting my feet. 
we talk to visitors about um, the need not to walk across the shingle. And it's quite a difficult story to tell. People think, how can shingle be fragile? But then we, you talk about, you know, those microscopic organisms, moisture and root systems in those that one footstep and you're destroying plants that have taken or ridges that have taken thousands of years to form. That's part of the story. Um, the other reason is that 80 years of military use for the site, lots of unexploded ordnance potentially still on site. It's, it's quite difficult when you see now this virtually empty landscape. You know, at the peak, you know, 600 to 1,000 people working here. Wow. So it was, a, you know, a big site. And I'm guessing it was quite secretive as well. If it's doing research, it must have been sort of, you know, if you worked here, you couldn't go out and tell your, tell your family what you were doing. Yeah, very secretive. It's been known locally for generations as the Island of Secrets. And those secrets, we are only still just beginning to know some of them. How do you find out about the site if it's all so secretive? I think I've got just the man that can tell you that. I'd like to introduce you to Angus Rainwhite, who is our regional archaeologist for the National Trust. Hello, Angus. Hi, oh, If I can get up. I'm great, Kate. Great to meet you. You too. So I believe you're going to take me out and explain all these weird and wonderful buildings. Yeah, exactly. I don't think it's worth talking about in here. So let's get out and have a look at them on the ground. Angus has brought me up and over a uh, big steel bridge over a creek and this is different again from the areas we've seen so far here at Orford Ness. And this area is almost oh, desert-like for want of a better word. You're right to mention a desert-like landscape because it is about as near to a desert as you'll find in the British Isles. So we've just come to this square, almost sort of concrete and brick built building and it's got a metal staircase going up one side of it. So are we going up to the top, Angus? Yeah, we'll go up to the top Amazing. and have a look. Get a brilliant view of everything from up here. Oh, fantastic. Oh my word. God, what a strange place. What an odd landscape. It feels like I'm on the moon. So this building here had high-speed cameras in it, recording the flight of a bomb from when it left the aircraft to when it splashed in the sea over, over there. And if you look to the right, you can see a big pit. Yeah, a big, can, big hole. Can you guess what that is? Is it a bomb crater? That is, that's a bomb crater. That so came that, close, That came it? close. You know, it just shows that although this was military experimentation, it was dangerous yeah. work, even for the boffins who yeah. were in here. So obviously there's lots of strange buildings around here, but there's one just sort of directly in front of us that looks like uh, an old windmill. Is that what it is? Uh, well, <laughs> it does look like an old windmill, but actually, well, we call it the, the Black Beacon, and that's our next target, so we're going to walk out there now. Sounds sinister. This feels a bit Game of Thrones, I think, round here. There's a sort of tree to the right of it, which is, like, completely dead and gnarly, and this big black tower in front of us. It does feel like there should be a dragon sat on top of it. Yeah, so this is a late 1920s experiment. So it had a rotating radio beacon in it, a okay. big aerial rotating round inside this thing that looks like a, a, a windmill and it was a navigation beacon, so it was really like a sort of radio lighthouse. And then later on it got used for work on the atomic bomb. So you're telling me actual nuclear bombs were dropped over there? Yes, in the sea, not 
not with their nuclear bits. I was going to say. Well, they were dummy nuclear bombs, so oh, they wow. were the same shape and size and weight, uh, but with nothing inside. So they were looking at the ballistic properties of the bombs. OK, Kate, I think it's time to go and look at the big buildings over here. These are the atomic weapons laboratories. We want to sort of people when they come here to appreciate change in mm -hmm. nature. You know, so we're watching man-made structures disappear back into nature, if, if you like, the sort of memorials to the Cold War just gradually crumbling in front of us. Yeah. I mean, we've taken a sort of a bold decision really here not to intervene at all in, on these structures we're just mm -hmm. walking up to now, despite their significance. You know, these are actually scheduled ancient monuments now. Really? So they're the equivalent of Stonehenge <laughs> in national significance. That's amazing. Right, are we going to go in? Yeah, let's go in. We've got to get this padlock off. There's huge sort of metal mesh doors. Massive. How weird. Uh, if you come down... To this next gate, we can look inside. Oh my word! Oh, you can still see the strip lighting and everything. Yeah, so you've got. It's smaller than I thought it would be from the outside. Can you see on the right-hand side a big water-filled yep. uh, pit? So that's where the atomic bomb would be mounted. So this was used for vibration tests and drop tests. So what Orphaness was about was just going through those um, environmental tests to try to put the bomb through all the rigours that it might go through. So vibrations, shocks, heat, cold, humidity. So where we are now in this big pit, the bomb would be lowered in there and then big vibrating units would be put onto it, which would shake it around for a long period and then it would be taken out and then they would test all the, elect all the wiring to make sure it was still functional. So that's how big the bomb is, it's huge. Well, the, for a spy, you've just identified a critical piece of information because that, is the, that pit is the size of Britain's first atomic bomb. That's huge! Which was called Blue Danube. When this was operational, you've got to imagine something more like uh, a surgical unit. OK. So we've just gone through two... Well, we've gone through one metal gate, we've been faced by another one, mm. and we can see out to the sea. But that's, originally, that would have a solid door on it. Yeah. Another solid door here, where we're standing. Mm -hmm. So a lorry would come with the bomb in it, through that door, into here. That door would be shut so the spy ships can't see. Can't see in, yeah. The one in front of us would be closed as well. Then wow. the bomb would be lifted out on a gantry, which has been taken away. The lorry would go out. And then it would be brought through these doors into the laboratory. And this is where white-coated boffins would be working. It's all air-conditioned, so it wouldn't have nasty salt, salty air in there, nice, even conditions it was a clean room mm -hmm. you know no bits of dust or yeah. grit could get into the electronics so it's absolutely different to the kind of derelict state it's in now this place is starting to give me a creep so should we get out of here 
Yeah, let's go. <laughs> we'll go on and have a look at one of Orford Ness's pagodas. Well, that sounds very genteel. Is it going to be tea? Tea and cakes <laughs> in the pagoda. I don't think there'll be tea or cake. Oh, disappointing. So coming around this corner, I guess they are, there's two absolutely huge, very, very odd looking buildings. You've got, it, it, it looks like some sort of ancient temple. Yeah, yeah, you're right. They, they do look like temples. The, these are locally called the pagodas. So these are the sort of iconic buildings of Orfordness. So they're another couple of labs that were built to work on the atomic bombs. And they've got a different design. I mean, the one thing we're looking at here is, although we've sort of talked about the sort of the, the build itself going to Rackaroon, I can see that there's obviously plants are taken over the shingle. Although humans may have abandoned this, that nature's probably moved in. Yeah, so you, you've got some, you know, really typical shingle beach plants here, these yellow horn poppies. Um, you know, they, they're, they're very typical of this kind of habitat and they've colonised. But more importantly, we've got a really large gull colony at, at Orford Ness, in, internationally significant. And some of them nest on top of the roof of this building, kind of using it as a protected cliff because they're up there away from the, the foxes. So nature has used these buildings as kind of new habitat, I suppose. It's really been amazing, Angus, the variety of, of buildings that you've shown me today, you know, from the sort of pagodas behind us, so those sort of first labs, to that weird black beacon, to the, the ballistics tower we looked at at the beginning. It's just such a strange hodgepodge of, I suppose they're all little time capsules in their own little way, aren't they? But we've just got one last place that I want to show you uh, before you go home. It is. <gasps> so this is uh, a nuclear bomb. It's called WE-177. And this was the final bomb developed at Orford Ness. That's a lot smaller than that big. Yeah, but much, much, much more powerful. In my head, when I look at it, you know, the word weapon of mass destruction, you expect something huge and black and horrible looking. But for me, this sort of white painted it doesn't sort of feel like a weapon of mass destruction until you kind of think it through yeah. what it's capable of. It's very sobering, really, isn't it? And let's think, you know, if this had been let go on somebody else, they would have let go something else yes. on us. And it's, you know, that's we, a thing, isn't it? We wouldn't be here. No. The National Trust wouldn't be, no. wouldn't be here. No. Yeah. Exactly. So it's, you know, we're pro provoking a lot of thought with the exhibition here and having this thing, you know, is, you know, we've always said this is the most significant object that the National Trust has in its care. It's been a real rollercoaster of emotions as much as anything else. It's been, um, yeah, very eye-opening, but thank you very, very much for showing me around. It's been fascinating. Just reflecting back on, on the visit here at Orford Nest today, I don't quite know what I was expecting when I arrived. I think I was very focused on the sort of 
coastal conservation side of thing, you know, the, the shingle and the species and habitats that, that are there, I wasn't expecting quite as varied a visit as I've had. You know, it's so strange, this sort of juxtaposition of this very delicate, fragile habitats and landscape from, you know, the shingle banks and looking at the salt marsh and stuff like that to this really sort of robust looking military history and the sort of history of Orford Ness in, in the sort of arms race. It's one of those places where you, I think you can, you know, keep exploring, keep coming back to and never have the same experience twice. Thanks for listening to this episode of the National Trust podcast. If you'd like to learn more about Orford Ness, check out the links in our show notes. And don't worry, you won't need to sign the Official Secrets Act if you want to visit. If you have the time, we'd love it if you could leave us a review of the show on your podcast player. We'll be back soon with new episodes and a whole new season. To be the first to listen, make sure you've pressed subscribe. But until then, from me, Kate Martin, and from the National Trust podcast team, thanks and goodbye.